Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. A lot of you know that I grew up in a ministry called Betel that we actually support as a church, and it's a residential community of people following Jesus out of addiction. And one of the things... It's it's not the type of program where there's necessarily a fixed time and a graduation point, but there is another type of graduation that a lot of the men and women in the community would look to, and there's a particular rule that they're not allowed to date in the community until they've been there about 18 months or more. And the idea being, for 18 months, as you're coming out of addiction, you really need to do some serious work on yourself before you impose yourself on someone else. And, and so the 18 months became kind of a graduation for the people in community. And as soon as that mark of 18 months would come, they would you know, suddenly have a testimony from the Lord that they'd have to share in church, and they would just slip it in that they'd been there 18 months. And, you know, I'm on the market, in other words. And... And there was this kind of, when, when you've been living 18 months in a dorm room with maybe 10 other guys, there's a sense in which marriage seems like a graduation. <laughs> because you get to move out of the dorms and you get to move in with your wife. And there was often a mentality with a lot of the guys that, once they graduated into marriage, then everything would just be wonderful. <laughs> and everything would be that fairy tale ending of happily ever after. And I don't know if you noticed, every fairy tale always ends at the wedding, right? <laughs> I would love to see someone in Hollywood should do kind of like the part two, where it's like after. Prince Charming and whoever gets married and, and how, they, how that happily ever after is going a year or two down the line. So I want to welcome you if you're online and if you're here, especially as a guest. We've got some guests with us this morning. And my name's Ian. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And we last week began a series talking about relationships and really just coming and sitting at the feet of Jesus and asking him, Master, what do you have to teach us about relationships? And so in the first message, we're looking at the, the gospel of Matthew and the first message in Matthew 22, we saw how Jesus teaches that we are, in fact, made for relationships. Because God is Trinity, it means he is relationship in himself. Relationship is part of the fabric of reality, and therefore all our relationships are intended as a self-revelation of who God is. And so Jesus says our ultimate ethic is love. He sums up the whole law as love God and love people. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to be moving a little bit backwards in the book of Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 19, where Jesus looks at the two relationship statuses, marriage and singleness. Both in this one chapter, he talks about singleness and marriage, which are the statuses out of which we do all of our relating. 
And so today we're going to begin with a message I've titled, when we enter into the topic of relationships, we begin with marriage. So many of you, if you've, if you've spent time in the church at all, you've probably heard quite a few teachings on marriage. And of course, that's extremely important. But it's, it's kind of a funny place to start, if you think about it, because none of us begins life with marriage. And yet all of us, you begin your life out of marriage. Yes, Sarah, I know. Okay, but <laughs> ideally, but none of us is born married. Can you agree with me on that? Okay, so none of us is born married, and yet every one of us either has been single or will one day again be single, <laughs> unfortunately. And so I want to start with singleness. We've all been single, and yet how many messages have you ever heard about singleness? I personally have never heard one whole message dedicated to singleness, and this will be the first one that I've ever given. So it's really a gaping hole in our modern discipleship that we haven't addressed singleness. And so I think what hap- what's happened is it's actually left us prey to all sorts of destructive ways of thinking and tendencies, and we're going to get into that. It's imperative for us to, to know how to think Christianly about singleness. And just like the whole church needs to hear what the Bible has to say about marriage, the passages in the Bible about singleness are also addressed to the whole church, which means they're of benefit. They're applicable to the whole church. And so if you're, if you're here and you're married, listen in, because this is applicable to every single one of us. And what I want to show you today, what I want us to learn together from Jesus, is that if we don't understand the gift of sing, because Jesus is the glory of the gift of marriage, because Jesus is the glory of both. All right, so let's read in Matthew 19 together. And we're going to begin in verse 3. And like last week, what we see is Jesus is being confronted publicly by the Pharisees, which lets you know that this is a public competition of honor. That's what they're doing whenever they challenge him publicly with a question. They're testing him as to who's going to come out with the greatest honor. So we begin in verse 3. This is what it says. Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one, if you could move to the next slide there, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. 
But he said to them, not everyone who can receive this saying, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So the first thing we have to see in this passage is the foundation of Jesus' sexual ethic. If we don't see this, then we can't build onto what his view of the intent of singleness is, okay? So the subtitle of this series is, it's called As Intended, and the subtitle is Everything Jesus Said and Didn't Say About Relationships. Well, here's a few things Jesus never said. He never talked about homosexuality. He never talked about sex before marriage. He never talked about cohabitation. He never talked about masturbation. He never talked about many of the things that our contemporary society is very concerned about. And so a lot of times it's assumed that the Old Testament view of, of God towards sex was, was, it was harsh, it was restrictive, it was even repressive, some would say. But Jesus, well, he was much more laid back about these things. He had to have been, right? Because he didn't even talk about them. So the argument goes, why do Christians make such a big deal out of something that Jesus never even talked about? And didn't Jesus say to just focus on love? Well, if we can assume, if we can concede together that love is not only a feeling, but it's actually acting in a person's best interests, then we have to go back to something we looked at last week, which is this, that we can't know what's best for something or someone if we don't know its intended purpose or their intended purpose, all right? And this is exactly how Jesus frames his answer to the Pharisees. The Pharisees ask him, in the context of divorce, they're asking him a question about sexual ethics, And Jesus says, you can't judge the rightness or wrongness of divorce if you don't know the purpose of marriage, unless you know the purpose of human sexuality. I want to say, you can't know the purpose of marriage unless you know the purpose of human sexuality as expressed in maleness and femaleness that God created. And so the place that Jesus turns for an understanding of these purposes, of these intents, is that he turns to the order of creation. He turns back to the book of Genesis in the Hebrew scriptures. And so we're not going to dwell on this because actually next week we're going to be diving into Genesis as we focus on marriage. But just to summarize for now, what Jesus quite simply teaches is that humanity was created as male and female. And this male and female flesh is to be joined within the covenant of marriage. This is the simple reading of what he says. And so this is the foundational assumption of his sexual ethic. All right? Ethics is how you decide the rightness or wrongness of something. All right? This is the foundation of how Jesus makes those decisions. And so when we see that, it helps explain why Jesus didn't talk about some of the things that are such hot-button issues in our time. And once again, like last week, we we talked about cultural assumptions. Well, here we encounter another set of cultural assumptions. And the reason Jesus doesn't talk 
about things like sex before marriage or cohabitation or homosexuality is that in the context of Judaism, in the context of the ancient world in which he lived, all of those things were assumed by the Jews as being outside of the pattern of Genesis. It was the shared assumption. And so all of those things were, were um, not spoken of because it was a shared assumption that they were outside. They were clearly outside of God's pattern in Genesis, which says that the intent for sex was in the marriage covenant between a man and a woman for life. And so Jesus doesn't talk about those things because everyone was simply assuming that they were off limits. It wasn't something that anyone was talking about. All right, now, so you're saying Jesus didn't challenge cultural assumptions? Well, no. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is very comfortable with challenging all sorts of cultural and religious assumptions. It just so happens that this set he agreed with. This set he agreed with because it was founded on what's written in Genesis. And so what's interesting is, contrary to what society sometimes says about Jesus, not only did Jesus not liberalize the Bible's sexual ethic or or the assumptions of his time, Jesus actually went beyond them. He actually made them stricter than people assumed. He says, not only is sex intended for marriage, but because marriage is a divine institution, humans don't get to decide when it's over. According to Jesus, and that the language he uses, it's quite, it's, it's visceral. And so you could describe it like this. Divorce, according to Jesus, is an emergency separation of flesh. The separation of your flesh. It's not something you typically opt for. Right? Think of it like an Amputation. An amputation is a separation of your flesh that is sometimes necessary. But only in extreme cases and only ever with severe pain. And so what's really interesting, okay, so Jesus gives this response to the Pharisees, and then we don't actually get to hear how the Pharisees respond. We hear how the disciples respond. And their reaction is, well, Jesus, if this is true— It's almost like you're saying it would be better not to get married. And what's easy to miss for us in our day is that there's there's irony in what they're saying. They're clearly intending this as a joke, all right? For someone not to get married. Completely unthinkable that it might be better for someone not to get married. Every single cultural and religious assumption and thing that they had been taught told them that it was a man, it was a man's duty to family, to honor, to legacy, to God, to get married and to raise children, right? That's why the, the, you know, so so much of the time through scripture, it it mentions the barrenness of, of a husband and wife and how painful that is because in the culture to not have children, it basically was, it, it was a stain on the family honor. And it meant that your, your legacy would have no way of continuing. Okay? And so every assumption of the disciples' culture and religion told them marriage was absolutely the will of God and they weren't strange for believing this. Every single religion and culture that we know of up until this time basically taught this. 
And so Jesus must have completely blown their minds when he says, in responding to their joke, he says, well, actually, guys, for some people, it is better not to get married. There's also irony in the fact that he himself, as an unmarried man, is saying this, okay? And so the point here is that Jesus commended singleness as honorable in the service of God. All right, so how did he do this? Well, as we were reading that passage, now we come to the part where I get to explain what you've all been thinking, which is, what exactly is a eunuch? Okay? And the the most tactful way I can describe this is in the words of a British Sunday school teacher, a friend of mine, who, when an inquisitive child in her class asked her the question, Miss, what is a eunuch? She said, well, a eunuch is a man who does not possess or cannot use his dangly bits. So now you know how to respond to that question. And Matthew, for us today, he's he's forcing us to do a little bit of homework culturally because this isn't something, you've probably not met someone who who would identify as a eunuch, but Jesus says some eunuchs are born this way, some are made this way, they're forced to become this way, and others, he says, most shockingly, choose this way. And everyone that he was speaking to knew exactly what he was talking about because eunuchs were very common in ancient society. Up until, believe it or not, about a hundred years ago, there were still eunuchs around. If you've ever heard of castrato singers, that's what they were. You can look it up on YouTube if you want to be freaked out about what that sounds like. But eunuchs would often even hold very influential roles within government. They were trusted with the royal harem. But here's the thing. In the law of Moses, eunuchs were actually explicitly excluded from the covenant. Deuteronomy 23.1 says that anyone who has been castrated is specifically excluded from the assembly of God. The tabernacle, not, you know, the Pentecostal denomination. Deuteronomy 23.1, it's not, not the best life verse to choose, is it? But, <laughs> and, and, you know, just as an aside, that, that fact is what makes the story in Acts of, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because this man who would have been excluded from the people of God and the covenant is now anyone today, what this says. And so anyone today, what this says is that anyone suffering the stigma, the the, the suffering experience of people um, maybe with birth defects or who are born intersex or who wrestle with gender dysphoria, it means that Jesus has good news for them. He says, you're welcome into my covenant people. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just talking about the physical state of a eunuch. He's, he's using eunuchs as a picture of a life without the possibility of sexual fulfillment, we might say. And so what he's painting here is a picture of Christian singleness. All right? And so when we follow the train of thought here, this is what Jesus is saying. Christian singleness means being unmarried and committed to sexual abstinence. 
Now, it's not hard to see where the difficulty comes in for our culture, because our culture assumes the former statement, but denies the latter statement. The world would say, of course, singleness is being unmarried, but it's not a commitment to sexual abstinence. In fact, the world would say the gift of singleness is sexual freedom without the commitments, the bondage of marriage. And so the world often celebrates singleness more and more. And actually, more and more people are coming to the conclusion that it is better not to get married, as the disciples said. And for the first time in our society, there are more people of marriable age who are unmarried than people of marriable age who are married. And so if we don't have a theology of singleness, our message of good news and our teaching on relationship is going to be completely irrelevant to now the majority of people in their 20s and 30s. This is why it's important to think about this. All right? And so even if people, there's a lot of, you know, to do about marriage and marriage laws today in society, of course, but if people do desire marriage, then they certainly don't believe it should should be constrained to a Christian sexual ethic, right? So Jesus says, which is radical to our setting, Jesus says, apart from Christian marriage, the only way to be faithful to God's intent for sexuality is to abstain, is to be celibate. And that's why, even though the New Testament talks about singleness as a gift, in my experience in the evangelical church, this is the gift of God that nobody wants. If it is a gift, this is like the last one on the prize table. <laughs> and so it, it's important for us to recover the genuine gift of singleness. And if, we have, if we're going to do that, we need to dispense with a few common myths. All right? And so the first one is what I call the Protestant myth. All right? In the Protestant branch of the church, we're a part of that, in the evangelical church especially, single Christians, as they advance in adulthood, they routinely find that they're treated as if something is wrong with them. Or they're told, you're just too picky. Or they're overlooked for leadership because it's assumed that they couldn't possibly minister to married people or to people with kids. And so in evangelical churches, a lot of times, people would be uncomfortable with the thought of a single pastor. And sermon illustrations, conversation, they feel left out in sermon illustrations, and they feel left out of the church's family-oriented events. And so the way I'd summarize the Protestant myth is this, is that singleness is permissible, but inferior. But here's the thing. Jesus never idolized marriage. When was the last time you heard a wedding sermon that at the end of it, you said, whoa, it's better not to get married. (laughs) 
And that's exactly the response that Jesus has when he talks about marriage. The disciples say, well, if that's your view of marriage, Jesus, maybe it's better not to get married. And if you think about it, how can we demean singleness when John the Baptist, the one that Jesus says is greater than anyone born of woman, lived and died, as far as we know, as a single man? How can we demean singleness when the Virgin Mary is the one that's blessed among all women? How can we demean singleness when the Apostle Paul, the author of half the New Testament, the founder of the church in Europe, lived and died as a single man? And not only that, he said, I wish that all of you could be like me. Right? And how could we demean singleness when the one that we follow, the one that we disciple ourselves to, the one we worship as God, Jesus, the most influential man in history, died as a 33-year-old, childless, wifeless virgin. How can we think of singleness like that? Now, so that's, that's the Protestant myth. Now, believe it or not, it hasn't always been like this. For most of Christian history, singleness was actually seen as desirable and even often as spiritually superior. And that leads me to the second myth. It's not the myth that we particularly deal with today, but it is the one that in reaction to the first one can rear its head, which is what I call the Catholic myth, which is this. The Catholic myth is that singleness is preferable and superior. This probably goes back to Eusebius, who was one of the early church, who was the first historian of the church in the fourth century, and he distinguished between what he called the permitted life— which was regular work and allowed you to be married, and what he called the perfect life, which was dedicated to prayer and contemplation and which required celibacy. And so that was the priesthood and monasticism. That was the perfect life. Everyone else simply lived a permitted life. But the New Testament never exalts singleness over marriage. Jesus never forbids marriage marriage for his apostles. In fact, we know Peter and several of the other apostles were married. And so you find these two kind of equal and opposite myths and, and, and errors regarding marriage and singleness. And so if Catholic history exalted singleness over marriage and singleness for God was seen as superior for over a thousand years, imagine that. How is it that the Protestant church has swung completely the other way and elevated marriage at the expense of singleness? And I'll tell you why. I believe our culture has shaped us to desire sex more than we desire God. We've taken on the world's assumptions without even knowing it. And so it leads me to a third myth, which I've called the world's myth. And the world's myth is that human fulfillment is impossible without sex. So you see in the disciples' response, they thought it was unthinkable that it might be better to marry, 
not because they were modern, you know, urbanites, but because they were part of a traditional culture and they shared the assumption that a person cannot be fulfilled without birthing children as a legacy for their family. And so you see this in traditional cultures. You see it in fairy tales. It's the idolization of marriage, all right? Now, on the other hand, our society, contemporary society, idolizes independence. And what happens is both of them, in the end, as they do that, they're actually idolizing sex. I used to hear a phrase growing up. I don't know if people still say this, but you, you may have heard. There, there's a phrase sometimes that when a, a, a male has sex for the first time, that they've become a man. And if you just think about that for one second, what does that imply? It means that unless you are sexually active, you are less than fully human. You're less than a full man. And you're incomplete as a person. And so this this is how I sum it up. Where sex is an idol, singleness becomes a curse. You guys know I love history, and, and historians point out that... The sexual revolution, you didn't think you'd be hearing the word sex this much, did you? This, <laughs> I could see it in your face. <laughs> this is really important stuff, though, guys. We have to be able to talk about this here, because otherwise, we're abandoned to the world's discipleship over Christ. All right? So, <laughs> historians point out that, that what's, what's now called the, the deepest, and definitely the 1960s, it may be one of the deepest and definitely the quickest revolution of morals that any civilization has ever seen. Because what happened was, in one generation, things that were assumed in traditional cultures for thousands of years were completely abandoned. And the church suddenly found itself in completely unfamiliar territory. So, the church had to ask itself, how do we respond to this sexual revolution? And the answer was to lift up marriage as the Christian answer. And of course, that's partly true. Now, if you grew up in the era I did and, and you know, before, if you grew up in, in the last 40 years, probably, um, Christian teens and young people were emphatically told to save sex for marriage, which is correct. And we may not have been taught it, but we certainly learned it, that if we did that, then God would bless us. And once we got married, our sex lives would just be just out of this world. (laughs) Now, a lot of people have found out it doesn't quite work that way. You actually, there's work involved, okay? But here's the thing. Because marriage effectively became the only response to the sexual revolution, we suddenly found ourselves without a good news to the single. We suddenly found ourselves without a good news to the same-sex attracted. 
we suddenly found ourselves without good news now for people, for people who find themselves, what is the good news? For people who find themselves outside of a Christian sexual ethic. Who want to be faithful to Jesus, and so they know they can't just do what the world does and says, and yet they can't seem to fit the pattern of, of what is expected or, or what everyone seems to desire. And so I think what you see is at bottom, we've been deeply shaped by the same assumptions as our culture. And what we end up communicating is that life without sex is not fully lived. And so, even in the church, to tell someone that celibate single life is the only alternative to Christian marriage, a lot of us would wince to say that, right? Why? Because, for some reason, it feels, it feels cruel and unusual to have to tell someone, and many people feel as though that's a fate almost as bad as death. And What's the saddest thing about all this is that <laughs> the suicide rates would bear that out among kids and young people who, who experience same-sex attraction, for instance, within the church. It's tragic. But here's the truth. Humans need intimacy, but they don't need sex. Humans are made for intimacy, not sex. That's our next point. So if that's true, the answer to the idol of sex is not marriage. It's Jesus. That's a really easy answer for me to say. But I, I want us to see that this is true. The answer to the longing for intimacy and singleness is not actually sex. It's the one whose intimacy we were created for. The one with whom intimacy, all right, with whose intimacy, sex is just a picture of that. Marriage, the Bible tells us, is it's merely a picture of union with Christ and with God. And so, Here's the thing that the world often ignores. It's possible to have lots and lots of sex and no intimacy. And, maybe even more radically, it's possible to have no sex at all and have an abundance of intimacy. And if you find yourself struggling to believe that, it might be not that God has misunderstood us and our desires and our needs, but that we've misunderstood the goodness of God. We've misunderstood the desirability of what it means to know him. He is the reality that our hearts desire. He is the one that we're made for. And so, it dawned on me a number of years ago as we were, we were talking with a bunch of teenagers and we were, we were at our summer camp and they were raising this issue and, and basically asking the question, well, well how can the, if, if, for instance, if you're same-sex attracted and, and the church is saying, well, you, 
you have to dedicate yourself to a, a celibate life. Well, how can that possibly be good news? And it dawned on me, it's because we don't realize that Jesus is the good news. And if we can't see that a single savior was the full expression of what it means to be human, then it means that we, we don't really believe that Jesus was everything he said he was. And so what we find is that the teaching of Scripture is this, that both marriage and singleness are unto the Lord. If we're married, we're married for his sake. If we're single, we're single for his sake. And contrary to culture, if you're single, it's not for the sake of fulfilling all your dreams and goals and desires. The Bible would say if you're single, if God has you as single, It's for his sake. It's for the sake of the kingdom. And both marriage and singleness have particular graces for those who can receive them as from the Lord. Just as there are intrinsic goods to marriage, there's also intrinsic goods to being single. You can read 1 Corinthians 7, which is the fullest exploration of the goodness of singleness of the Apostle Paul talks about his own state and how he wishes that, that, that everyone could be as free for the Lord as he is. And he talks about how God can use and has used his singleness to be unencumbered by, by anyone being dependent on you, you know, family and children and all those things that actually for him allowed him to do the work of his calling in the Lord. But here's the thing that, that is sad, I think, is that we we spend so much time coveting each other's gifts. So, single people will often understandably long and burn for the gift of marriage. And then you also find married people (laughs) fantasizing about the gifts and the freedoms of singleness. And so, neither are actually receiving the gift, receive the grace of the gift. And here's, here's, if there's anyone single here or watching, I mean, this goes for you if you're married too, but particularly, your value in the kingdom is not in whether you're married. It's not in whether you're single, as if that makes you more spiritual. It's being faithful within the status that God has you in. And the only way you experience the grace of your status is is, is by accepting it as from the Lord and for the Lord as long as he has you within that status. And the way that you, you know, know that the Lord has you, you know, being single is, is that you're single. And the way that you know that the Lord has work for you to do and, and has a gift for you in marriage is that you happen to be married. And so, Jesus says, singleness is good for the sake of the kingdom, but only to those who can receive it from the Lord. And he says, marriage is good for the sake of the kingdom, but it's actually so serious that not everyone should be so quick to desire marriage. 
And so I think actually we need more people in our communities, in the church in general, who are intentional in committing to making the most of the gift that God has given them within the status that they're in. Not worrying so much about the next status that they want, but actually, as they're in that, committing to the Lord and saying, God, I'm going to use this time to the fullest for your glory. And so, the final thing I want to say here is that the church, the church is the community where we're called to live out these relationship statuses together. We don't live them out on Facebook. Although, you know, the relationship's not official until it's Facebook official. (laughs) We're called to live out, all of us have the same calling, actually, which is to, to Jesus. Our calling is to the caller. And yet, we find ourselves in different states of life, and we're called to live these out in a mutually dependent, supportive way that together declares the good news of Jesus. That together actually makes the good news flesh. So we not only declare this in word, but we declare it in the quality of our community. All right? And so the question for us is this. Is the quality of our community such that those who are single can find true intimacy in friendship and family? Do we have the kind, the quality of community that a single person actually begins to have their needs of intimacy met through friendship? I listened to a great podcast last night that was talking about if, if we knew how to practice friendship better, not only would, would single people find intimacy, but our marriages would be better. Because a lot of times we put too much strain on what a marriage is designed to be because we, we, we don't actually know what having a real friend looks like. Do we have the kind of community where single people can find intimacy, the type of people who will share their deepest needs, who will celebrate their greatest joys, the kind of people that will vacation with them, that will live together with them, the ones that will hold their hand on their deathbed? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could celebrate those who are faithful in their singleness, in the, we celebrate anniversaries of marriage. We celebrate anniversaries of marriages as, as an achievement. Well, how much of an achievement? I would say it's an equal achievement to remain faithful to the Lord as a single person for years on end in a sex-crazed culture. Wouldn't it be amazing if we saw such a deep level of friendship that those needs of intimacy were met, those needs of intimacy that that send us looking for them falsely in pornography and illicit relationships. Wouldn't it be amazing if we saw more single people intentionally choosing to to share life together, to form, you know, embedded community together? And this is actually happening. I'm seeing this like like a modern kind of monasticism, and it's also to do with living costs. But... (laughs) But this is the kind of community that we have to seek to be 
not only for the sake of, of singles, but for the sake of the whole family, the sake of the whole household of God. And my prayer is that for, for people who are single in our midst, that even if they want for romance, they would not want for intimacy within the church. And I believe that if we had such a community, that would be a place where our marriages would thrive all the more. And so, I, I just close with this. We, we honor and lift up and, and, and hold in high regard. We honor Christian marriage here at NC4. And if you're listening to this and you're committed to Jesus in Christian singleness, I want to honor you today as well. We honor you for your faithfulness. And I commend you for your faithfulness, like I said, in this sex-crazed culture that we find ourselves in. And I'm going to see in the church. Excluded even in the very place where you're trying to find intimacy in the church. And so one, one sermon cannot possibly do justice to this. I've only scratched the surface. This is limited. But if there is anyone who wants to dive deeper for yourself or for a friend or someone that you care for, there's a, there's a ton of books, books and resources that I've read and consulted in preparing for this. I'll just mention one. The best short work that I've come across so far is by Sam Alberry. It's called The Seven Myths of Singleness. It's really good. But here's the thing. I'm, I don't presume to speak on this because this is my testimony. I don't presume to speak on it because I am an expert in, in relationships. I presume to speak on it because I really believe in the goodness of Jesus. He's the, he's, he's the only thing I got, guys. He is our reward. And if we don't understand the gift of singleness, then we twist the gift of marriage because Jesus is the glory of both. Would you stand with me as we pray? And let's, why don't we, I think we've got time to close in a song together. I think we're going to sing, You're Worthy of It All. But Lord Jesus, I thank you for the fact that you show for us what the full expression of the image of God in humanity is. You display for us what true friendship looks like. You show what intimacy look like, looks like in friendship and in what you did for us, Lord. Lord, would you teach us? Would you just destroy this idol of sex in our culture? You have an intent for we know it's a gift that you've designed and that you've, you have an intent for within marriage, Lord, but if we've set that up as an idol, it is such a pathetic substitute for you. Would you help us to see it for what it is? Lord, and would you stir our hearts to desire the real thing, that true intimacy that we're created for with you? Lord, and that whether we're married or single. Lord, that we would remain and learn contentment within the status that you've placed us in and that we would use the gifts that are on each of them to your glory, to your honor.
and to our great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.